1: there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time.
2: They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape.
1: Good evening, listeners.
2: Good evening, listeners.
1: You're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Hannah Stewie.
0: And I'm Jenna Fryer. At Oregon State, we have over... 4,000 graduate students and both talk fellows in over 80 different programs of study and here on inspiration dissemination we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week if you're a graduate student or a postdoc at osu and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at oregon state check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our twitter and podcast
1: pages this episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show, our guest is Esteban Hernandez, or E. Um, e, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on.
2: Yeah. I, Hi. Uh, great to be on.
1: Um, And I guess we'll just get right into it. So, from our understanding, you work on chemicals known as PFAS. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay.
1: Can you give us an understanding of what PFAS is?
2: So uh, PFOS stands for per- or polyfluorinated alkyl substances. Um, Really, they are just man-made chemicals that look a lot like their um, non-fluorinated version. So a good example would be like acetic acid or vinegar. Um, It contains uh, two carbons, four hydrogens, and two oxygens. And instead of having a carbon-hydrogen tail, it has a carbon-fluorine tail. So these are just molecules that, again, instead of carbon-hydrogen bonds, have carbon-fluorine bonds.
0: So why are these carbon-fluorine bonds so bad and worse than their carbon-hydrogen bonds?
2: So it's more correct to say that it's not necessarily bad. It's just that they're more stable. Um, so the carbon-fluorine bond is the most covalent bond we know of in chemistry. And one of the kind of effects of this is that they are really, really stable and they don't break down. So that's great when you... So, for example, these molecules are used in um, jackets. So it's great if you don't want your rainproof jacket to break down but it's not great when you are done with that jacket and it sits in a landfill for however many years, thousands of years really, and doesn't those molecules don't really break down. Or if they're in your body and your body doesn't know how to metabolize them. So they also don't break down and they don't get cleared out of your body. So we know these molecules uh, bioaccumulate, which means they just don't leave your body once they get in them.
1: And you said these are... These compounds are found in things like raincoats. Mm -hmm. Um, But what are some other common places that you might find these things?
2: So they are in a lot of consumer products, everything from raincoats to paints um, to go boxes. If you buy a cheeseburger from McDonald's right now, it's going to come in like like a Big Mac comes in that cardboard box thing. That cardboard box actually has a layer that prevents the grease from coming out. And that grease there, that protective layer is chocked full of PFAS. Uh, Teflon, so Teflon coated pans, nonstick pans, they're one of the ones that really have the, you know, are known for having these compounds. But really, if you see any product that says stain resistant, waterproof, wetter, weatherproof, uh, there's a high chance that these molecules are present in some degree in these products.
0: So what is your piece of this research puzzle in trying to understand PFAS?
2: So I work in the uh, field laboratory, Jennifer Field Laboratory here at OSU. And there we are really focused on the analysis and detection of PFAS in different things. Um, So again, I am a part of a very great group of people and we all have our like Little area of expertise. Uh, Mine, particularly for right now, is looking at um, aqueous film-forming foams or AFFFs, and what those are used for are in cases where you have um, fires that are next to, or let's say, like a plane crash, is probably where these things are most well known for being used. Where you know you have the firefighters go out and they put out the fire, but there's hazardous high flammable materials next to the fire. Uh, in those cases, reignition and secondary fires are a really, really big problem. And so companies develop these aqueous film-forming foams. And what they do is they essentially create a layer between the fuel and the air. So once the fire is put out, the um, the fuel is covered because we all know like you know, gas is very flammable, but it's not really the liquid gas; it's the vapors of the gas. Same thing here; they f- form a layer so that that vapor doesn't go into the air, heat up, and cause reignition. And they're very, very good at what they do; they're phenomenal at what they do. Uh, the only issue is that they are chocked full of these compounds that don't go away. And they are a-, a property that you want in these foams is that they spread very easily. So we have a mixture of a bunch of chemicals that spread very easily, are oftentimes used outside, and um, don't go away. So it's kind of like this perfect storm of having these molecules enter the environment. And what I do is I use the technique called, or an instrument called uh, Nuclear Magnetic Resonance, or NMR, to Find quicker, not necessarily better, but we'll say quicker ways of detecting these uh, compounds in different things. Um, right now, my project is focused on looking at specific standards of AFFFs. So a good example is that um, let's say you so there have been many laws passed to reduce and take back and reclaim all of these molecule, all of these uh, mixtures that have these uh, PFAS in them. So we've moved towards fluorine free foams now, ever since I believe 2015. Uh, so a lot of work has been done to try to find ways to detect these things and, and bring them back. So commonly what you would do is you would use another technique called um, mass spectroscopy to look at, let's say you had a drum sitting in the back of a airport service dock or whatever and it's a rusty drum and there's no label on it, how do I know what's in there? You could take a sample and you can send it off to a lab where it would go through um, detection via mass spectroscopy which is often very arduous. Uh, there's a lot of work up. It takes quite a bit longer than what I usually work with, and it's uh, a technique that we call a destructive technique, which means that the sample is destroyed when you um, do it, so you can't get that sample back and you can't run more tests on it. Uh, NMR, on the other hand, is faster. It is oftentimes cheaper um, if you you go to a secondary lab and you get it tested, and it's a non-destructive technique, which means that I just need a little bit and I can... my tests with it and i can give it back to you um this is why in cases where you develop drugs and you have tiny tiny amounts of it nmr has seen a lot of use but here in this space nmr hasn't and that's mainly because it's not as sensitive so it can't detect smaller smaller quantities but that's not really what we aim to do right now with it because we're we're only focused on concentrated mixtures of these things and finding um, certain characteristics of the data we get out from the NMR and correlating that to time, manufacturer, and manufacturing method. And I think this is really important because it answers this forensic question of, you know, we, we go out in the field and we see that this specific airport has contamination. And then we take a little bit of sample of the soil or a sample of water from or a sample of the drum that they used. And we say, okay, well, what company made this? Okay, which airport bought from that company? Is it a municipal source? Is it a military source? Because all this factors into who really foots the bill in cleaning up the site. And I know Oregon's known for having portland as the superfund site where like that's a place that's been contaminated historically a lot by many different places and it's hard to parse out where all those sources come from and with nmr i want to answer the question of where does it come from and who made it
1: wow <laughs> yeah it's a
2: it's it's a big a big ask i know
1: yeah um, it's
0: super interesting that you're able to be able to see specifically what company things come from.
2: Yeah, we're we're working right now with a a really talented uh, statistician team here at OSU, where I generate the data and I look at it from. So a little bit about my background: I have I have a master's in organic chemistry, and I have spent a lot of time looking at organic reactions and I look at this data from an organic chemist's point of view because most of this, this science, most of this chemistry was developed back in like the sixties. And I say, okay, I sit back, I look at, I look at my spectrum and I say, all right, I'm an organic chemist in the sixties. What am I doing? What am I using? How am I making these things? And I try to find ways of understanding the data I get back from the point of view of a scientist that would have historically made these things. What the statisticians do is a much stronger ask of digging into the files, digging into the data, and saying, okay, I see this here, this there. What does that mean? Where does it all connect? And they, they look at it from like a, a multi-dimensional kind of differential problem kind of way. Of the patterns within the patterns, so machine learning is a big part of this, which i am I'm not going to sit here and say that I know everything about machine learning uh but I'm told that they are seeing that they can find a way to to parse out important signals from the data that we've been giving them.
1: What I'm really curious about is. So obviously you're looking at NMR as this technique where you can really dig into and find a faster, potentially cheaper way for detecting these very important molecules in the environment or in samples. What can you get more out of the data um, as with other canonical techniques or is the data that you get similar? Does it tell you similar things? Are there any differences?
2: So... We are working on now a, a a manuscript that really highlights the comparison. There are many different ways to um, specifically look at total fluorine in a con, in a in a mixture. You can do something called Kendrick mass defect, um, total oxidizable. Um, oh goodness, precursors—the top assay, um, NMR, mass spec. Uh, there's many different techniques. All of them have their you know, strengths and their weaknesses. Um, obviously, with NMR, it's that it's quicker. And, but the downside is it's not as sensitive. It can't pick up things in lower and lower or lower concentrations, which is why me and Patrick Reardon, the director of the NMR facility here, we're taking a lot of time looking at ways to increase our sensitivity so that we can hopefully in the future detect things in the environment. Um, So to go back to more of that, like what does it benefit and why does it benefit is that right now, I believe the um, EPA says that there's over 486,000 contaminated sites in the U.S. right now. And so, to get to take samples from all of those sites and run them by mass spec where multiple dilutions are probably going to be necessary, where sample workup is probably going to be necessary. That's going that is going to take collectively a lot of time. And my hope is where people could send samples to an NMR spectroscopist. That spectroscopist could go, okay, there's Not a lot of PFAS here. And the kind of PFAS that we do see, it'll be better to analyze it through traditional mass spec means. Or there's a lot of PFAS here. This is what we can get from this. Let's work on this site right now. So it's more of a, what I like to call a watchdog or like a first signaling kind of thing where you send it to us and if it's a really bad site, take it to the other guys. So that's kind of what I'm after.
1: Nice. And another thing that I was thinking about is, you know, why is, why is testing important? Why is trying to determine PFAS levels in the environment or different samples? Like, what are, what are we uh, afraid of, I guess, (laughs) with PFAS?
2: Um, So this actually does get back to where I'm from and everything and my personal kind of history with PFAS. Uh, so I am from face in, North Carolina, which is in the southeastern part of North Carolina. And um, through, the, through the southeastern part of the state runs the Cape Fear Valley. And it was back in 2011, maybe 2012. Um, researchers at NC State, North Carolina State University in Raleigh, found that the... Um, there was huge contamination of perfluorinated compounds in the Cape Fear River, and the Cape Fear River surf like the everyone in southeastern North Carolina gets their water from the Cape Fear River. So they saw these huge spikes of uh, PFAS in the water, and I believe they found five, five or six. Uh, perfluorinated compounds and there was one that they particularly i remember it very vividly because um the news said that they picked this compound because it was the easiest to say but uh gen x is what it's called and gen x is a um replacement for a current like now outlawed perfluorinated compound and they found it in huge quantities way over safe drinking um values and that was one of the lowest that they had found in the river and the other ones that were in much higher concentrations they didn't even have uh standards to know what they were so they were unknowns but they knew that they were perfluorinated compounds uh and it turns out that after some digging that these came from um the uh, DuPont Kemwar's manufacturing plant that was located in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And after some more research, it was discovered that they had been pouring these chemicals. And I'm not going to say, you know, consciously or not, but there was these chemicals leaking into our water since the 80s. And the toxicology of perfluorinated compounds isn't fully known but they are known to be linked with uh, thyroid cancer, low infant birth weight, uh, high cholesterol. So it's troubling that we don't know entirely what they cause, but it's even more troubling that these were in and are in a lot of cases, mostly in way elevated concentrations. And that's why detection prevention remediation is so important to me because even now there's probably still, I believe, uh, a paper came out probably about four months ago that said there's, there's still these compounds in our water and they're not going to go away for a while. So, um, finding quicker ways, finder, better ways to test these things. I think this is where it ties into me and it's personal for me uh, because it's, it's a, at the end of the day, it's a human health problem and it would really benefit the health of a region, which, you know, as it stands, Southeastern North Carolina is predominantly uh, African American is predominantly minority is predominantly poor and their water is not good. And so, Remediation is important, and that's why I think, or I think, NMR could be a very useful tool because it's quick, and hopefully, the quicker we can understand something, the more we could do. The quicker we could do something about it.
0: Absolutely. Is there any like progression in the area of remediation of like things that are helping at all?
2: Um. So I was finishing up my undergrad when the news broke uh, that these compounds were in our water. And I just remember, I forgot who it was, but it was some, somebody got on the news and said, all you need is a reverse osmosis water filter. And so they said that all you need was a multi thousand to $10,000 instrument in your home to make your water drinkable. Um, I don't know, because there's still research coming out now where they're still finding it in really high concentrations up and down the Cape Fear River. Um, But I know that everyone I know bought a Brita filter after it, and hopefully that does something. I believe the science says it doesn't. So no, I would say probably no no real uh, gain in that area.
0: It's a little
2: concerning discouraging yeah. well, the hope is
0: that your research will be able to at least let yeah. help you detect it and then be able to move forward from there or just
2: research like this in the area because we could also focus on making standards that help uh detect things easier that's another thing that's that can be done with this type of research um but yeah hopefully for the future
0: so did you uh, always have this dream of working on NMR for PFAS or where did you start your educational
2: journey? Um, So I started my educational journey uh, at Mars Hill University. um, And that's in the mountainous part of North Carolina, so the Western part of the state. Uh, I switched around a lot. I, I changed my major and changed classes so much. You know, I tell everyone that, you know, I started off as like a theater arts major uh, and I switched way too much for it to be okay. Well, <laughs> thankfully the, the career center didn't have a limit, but I switched a lot. And yeah, I, when I think about the switch and I think about why I did it, um, I remember a professor from, uh, Mars Hill, his name's Mark Molinax, And he said that cause one of my majors was religion. And he said that religion is like the glasses we use to see the world. And that's why people hold it very close to them and very personal for them. And, you know, listening to him say that and then feeling how I felt when I was in chemistry classes. Science is how I view the world and science helps me understand the world better. And I think that's really is what inspired me to do all this. And it's it's, it was like it was like a trickling stream at first. I'm not going to lie. I'm sure everyone listening and you both remember being in Gen Kim and doing ice tables and just slamming your head on the (laughs) desk and I don't want to do this anymore. Um, Yeah, that's like through that. That was still it sucked, but it was still fun and it was difficult, but I still got something from it. And, you know, as I progressed further and further on in my um, degree, you know, I did everything. You know, I learned about Schrodinger's equations in quantum mechanical chemistry. I learned about Einstein functions and all this other stuff. And it was like it was like understanding a little bit more of the universe every time I I, I moved forward. And then I get to graduate school and I start doing organic chemistry, I'm like, wow, there's like a whole world out there that I haven't seen. And so I do that. And then I get here. And when I was an organic chemist, historically, organic chemists are the ones that use uh, NMR the most, because whenever you create a new drug or you develop anything that has any pharma- pharmacological effect you have to make sure that it's really, really pure and you know exactly what it is because you can't, you can't give it to somebody and it have like some solvent in there that's going to give them lockjaw or something. So I spent a lot of hours uh, in the NMR facility, both here and at uh, UNCW where I did my master's. And I was sitting there and I was like, wow, there's a lot of stuff I don't know about when it comes to just this one thing that's such an integral part of my, um, my research. And I don't know, man, it's just like this itch in the back of my head that if I don't understand something, I just gotta, like, it's just a part of me. And I was given a book to try to understand it better. And I read the book and I was like, Oh wow. I have no idea how this works. (laughs) And so that pushed me even harder to understand it. And Thankfully I'm in a situation now where I really really like it. It's a really cool technique. Um it confuses people which is, means it's really fun to talk about at parties. And yeah, I can I can do what I love every day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This is a a fun fact, but E and I met because of an NMR conference that we both yeah. went to. So NMR people are nerds and Relate to each other. Yeah, we're, we're we're
2: all just really. Yeah, i i got on a I got on a plane. And they were like, "Yeah, there's going to be this other person from OSU there. You should probably talk to him." And I did really cool stuff on Hannah's end. I'm sure i I believe that the podcast is is recorded on the site where you could listen to Hannah's work.
0: Yes, I highly <laughs> recommend Hannah's episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: there was a a recent uh, presentation that. The director of our facility gave, and Hannah's research was the highlight. It was the first one that he spent w- a lot of time on. And like I looked at Hannah, I was like, You do such cool stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what you do is so cool.
0: So I'm going to sit in the distance and admire your passion for NMR and stay <laughs> <Yeah. literally laughs> ignorant of it. Yeah. And
2: uh, just for those out there, just to like make NMR hit home or like try to understand it better. Um, If you've ever been in an MRI or you've ever had an MRI done, that is what an NMR is. That is what nuclear magnetic resonance is. It's just imaging. So instead of take you where I take one dimensional NMR, which means I look at one thing. Hannah's known for being very good at two dimensional NMR where she looks at two things. And then when you take so you could think about taking a picture of a flat surface, a picture of a 2D surface, And then MRI is the picture of the 3D surface, which we use to understand what's going on in our bodies. Um, But my personal belief is they probably don't call it nuclear magnetic imaging because being from the South, I could wholeheartedly see someone trying to put my mom in the nuclear machine and (laughs) her not understanding what they're doing and then freaking out. So... Just to bring it home, we we all know what NMR is. We just don't know we know what NMR is. Mm-hmm.
1: They do not like the that word in healthcare. Yeah, healthcare. <laughs>
2: when you say nuclear in healthcare, like mixed with people, they, they freak out a little bit.
0: So during the pre-interview, you talked about a little bit of an outreach program you do with teens and younger students. So Mm -hmm. do you want to talk a little bit
2: about that? Oh, yeah, I could plug Teen Talks. So Teen Talks or Teen Toxicology is something here at OSU, and it's me and everyone in the toxicology department, well, the grad students of the toxicology department, and we do a lot of community outreach. Uh, Me and Allison Clark are on the outreach committee right now, and we're trying to most of our stuff revolves around the sciences, you know, getting more women into STEM, uh, having summer camps here where we teach people about just toxicology and chemistry. But this year we're starting to gear ourselves more towards community involvement that isn't necessarily science related, just trying to better the community as a whole. Um, but, yeah, we do everything from science fair judging to again, summer camps. And um, I believe now we're gonna start working with Habitat for Humanity, which I think will be really great. And then I also work with, um, in the chemistry department, we have something called Juntos, which looks at bringing more Latin people into the sciences, which is really important to me because I am a first generation American, I am half Mexican and, you know coming from my background I see how little representation I have in the science like my people have in the sciences and that's really really important to me to kind of get the message out there that it's it's like to demystify you know everything because I I feel like I was like a lot of people where when you thought about high school chemistry you kind of like shuddered and yeah it's it's not so much it's a it's a impossible task. It's just daunting. And we we bring students in, we show them, "Hey, you know, if you can if you can get through high school chemistry, you could do cool stuff like, I don't know, make a gummy bear explode or something."
1: <laughs> awesome. I love it. Love yeah. outreach. <laughs> yeah. Um one of the sort of traditions that we have on the show is asking you a piece of advice that you would give to other graduate students or undergrads, your past self, or just in general, a piece of advice you have as someone who has gone on the journey yeah. that you have?
2: Um, well, it, it, what I often say is um, to kind of keep me motivated is, you know, run to your dreams, just run as fast as you can and if you can't run walk and if you can't walk crawl but no matter what you do you should always kind of just just try to end the day a little bit closer to what you want to be than you started it um and then that you know brings to mind the whole like leave everything better than you found it that's another big one but also and I'm sure if my boss hears this she's going to laugh and disagree maybe but uh in our lab we have this whole rule uh it's called E's 10 minute rule and I I try very hard uh to follow this rule but it just if you can do something in 10 minutes just do it don't put it off if it's like you know something as simple as like load, I hate loading the dishwasher I hate loading the dishwasher so bad and like I, I put it off and I put it off and then I finally do it at the end of the night and it's been like two minutes and I'm just like just do it and like the little voice in my head is just like just do it if it doesn't take and like even if it's like ten minutes is a lot of time two minutes if it takes two minutes just do it and that'll at least make sure you brush your teeth in the morning <laughs>
0: That's some good advice that I should probably take to my lab, too, (laughs) as I'm sitting with a bucket of glassware that I haven't washed yet. Exactly. yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
2: back in the organic labs, I would just have a sink full, and I was just like, all right, I'm out of round bottoms. I gotta, I gotta do this.
0: Well, as we're wrapping up the show, our other tradition is asking, what is your favorite part about your research?
2: Um... I like when Hannah refills the liquid nitrogen. And I get to play in the cold fumes. <laughs> That's actually like it's really fun. And another cool thing is that so NMR is we have these superconducting magnets. So it has to be really, really cold to work. And so it's a helium jacket surrounded by a liquid nitrogen jacket. And it's just it's really, really cold. And weekly, weekly, mm-hmm. weekly, uh, <laughs> Hannah has to go in and refill it. And it just spews out uh, liquid nitrogen vapors. And you just get, like, you can walk by it. It's always so cold in the NMR room when we're working. Mm-hmm. Um, which is awesome in Oregon 98 degree heat. But if you're sitting there, sitting at a desk for three hours and you haven't moved and it's 15 degrees Celsius in the room, it gets a little chilly. So I like that part. Um I also like when the magnet doesn't turn off or the probe doesn't <laughs> randomly disengage. Um, and teaching people. I like teaching people about what I do. That's probably my favorite part. I no, not know. That was a lot of favorite things.
0: You can have many favorite things. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. It's hard to find in grad school, I so know. Keep, them, keep the list going. Mm-hmm. Well, it has been a pleasure talking with you tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Our final tradition is you get to pick your outro song. So what song did you pick and why?
2: So I picked uh, Bomb Bomb by Sister Nancy. Uh, And why I picked it is that, uh, one, it's one of my mom's favorite songs. So hopefully she gets to hear it. And two, Sister Nancy uh, was known for the longest time as being uh, Jamaica's only female DJ, and she makes really great music she's an incredible person she's an advocate for just involvement and bringing women into just anything where they're underrepresented and it's got a great beat who doesn't love a saxophone right
0: well thank you again e and please enjoy the song
2: Sing, can a bomb bomb. You're going to go to the you different fashion. No? No? Come we say one
0: thing, none can't understand. One thing, none see, can't understand. One make them a talk about me, ambition. Say I make them a talk about me, ambition. Come and say some of them a ask me where me get it from. Tell some of them a
2: ask me where me get it from. I told them no, no, it's from creation. I told them no, no, it's from shannon. No, 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 bam, bam. you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID.
0: This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamon. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible.